life can be chaotic. Uh, this morning I came in, and uh, while the team was getting ready, I noticed that we had the baptismal set up for tonight, and uh, the, the hardware, all the stuff that's supposed to be behind the curtain was kind of sitting out to the side, so I asked Sam in the back if he would come up and help me, and we were kind of pulling stuff around, and I didn't know that there's a, there's a high-pressured hose that was still feeding the baptistry. Uh, it was kind of tucked down in there, and so when we went to move it, it just came out and started doing the wild hose thing and soaked the floor and soaked me. So, and Sam, too, thanks for your help, Sam, but uh, it's cool to preach in damp pants. That's all I want to say. <laughs> it's dried enough that uh, hopefully there weren't any questions about what other kind of accident I may have had this morning. <laughs> oh, listen, it's funny how in life we seem to measure our success by counting heads. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Presidents are often deemed successful by how many people attend their inauguration, right? Musicians are often deemed successful by how large the venues are and how full they are as they go out on tour. And in a weird way, we consider our own lives successful by how many people like the things that we post online. What is it about approval from the masses that seems to bring validation to us in some way? I guess it's our nature to kind of equate success with a head count. Um, after all, we think if we're doing it right, people are going to show up, right? We're going to have more people. You know, internally, I think some of us, though, have de developed a theology in our hearts that actually equates us doing the will of God with the prosperity and popularity of the actions that we take. Well, it must have been God's will if there's a lot of people that engage in it. But if you think about it, drawing a crowd really isn't the primary way to measure spiritual success, especially at all. After all, Hitler was successful in convincing many people to follow him, but he certainly wasn't successful in the eyes of God. Headcounts can be dangerous for us as a measure of success spiritually. So as we move through today's message and we have this conversation about the idea of our idea of success versus God's idea of success, I want to invite you to consider this idea, that if you think that things aren't going well in your life right now, maybe if you feel like your plans and dreams are, are dying on the vine or it's just taking too long for anything to come together in your life, if your life doesn't feel successful to you, Perhaps the reason that you might be feeling that way is that you aren't defining success the way that God defines success. Maybe your way of defining success or your idea of pursuing success looks different than it does to God. So today we're going to wrap up our study in the life of David with a powerful lesson about how God views success and just how dangerous viewing success through the lens of the size of our audience or through the number of people who approve of us, we're going to look at how dangerous that really can be to us. You know, we're going to jump into this story in 1 Chronicles 21, and some of you are like, wait a minute, we've been in Samuel the whole time, you are right. <laughs> uh, the whole time we've been looking at David's life, we've been looking uh, at it through the book of Samuel, but um, also Kings and Chronicles follow afterwards, and we get a large picture of the life of David through those uh, two books as well. So we're going to look at 1 Chronicles 21. And the reason we wanted to look at this this morning is because it's a chapter of the life of David after he had been king for a very long time. And he had won many wars and even defeated his archenemy, the Philistines. They had been defeated officially by Israel. 
And at last, the nation of Israel was on top. And this was a time that David was kind of looking back on all the victories that he had had. It was a time of great military success, of economic prosperity for Israel, and really a lot of freedom and liberty that they had never experienced as a nation or they hadn't experienced for a long time. And so King David gets this idea. And his idea is this. He orders a census to be taken throughout all of Israel. And some of you might think, well, what was wrong with that? Well, David was thinking, this is a way that we can celebrate um, the success of our nation. What better way to do that than to count all the heads of people and say, hey, look, we did it. We're the big dogs. In case you didn't notice, watching world, Israel is kind of a big deal right now. You know, Israel, who had been oppressed so often or for so many years, was now on top. And for David, it was a way of measuring his own success. It was his way of saying, aren't we doing really well under my leadership, right? David said, hey, world, if you didn't notice, I'm kind of a big deal right now. That's what David wanted, in his, wanted the world to notice. So David's general, Joab, he kind of caught on to this whole thing that David was, was doing and, and the reason behind it, the motive behind it. And he strongly cautions David about doing such a thing. It's kind of like one of those moments when the person in power has a really bad idea and you're not sure how to tell them how bad their idea is because it's their idea, right? And they're in charge. Here's a little bit of a rabbit trail for you this morning. If you're ever in a position of leadership and at some point most of us are gonna experience a place in which we have influence where God has given us leadership or a leadership capacity, I wanna encourage you to never be afraid to tell your team that it is okay to disagree with you. Never be afraid to tell your team that it's okay to disagree with you. If you don't, you're gonna end up like David in this story we're gonna look at today where everyone around knows that the decision that you're about to make is an awful one that's probably gonna blow up in your face, but nobody feels like they're qualified to tell you that. And you know, though it's hard to hear, honest feedback for anyone is so helpful in life. We want people who are following us to feel just as comfortable with telling us about our oversights as our own kids feel comfortable about telling us uh, those things. You know, our kids, especially our teenagers, know how to do this just fine. Uh, when they think that their parents have a bad idea, they just say, hey, that's a bad idea, count me out, right? I'm not interested in being involved. But sometimes as adults, I think we're a little more subtle about it. So here is David's general, Joab. He's David's right-hand man in this season. And he's kind of beating around the bush a little bit. This is setting up the story we're going to look at today. And he asks David, he says, why do you want to do this, David? What's your motive behind wanting to count all of the heads in the nation? Joab says to David, don't you remember what you said? David, you've always said that our success comes from God. That we're supposed to trust God. That as a nation, we put our hope in God. Remember, David, you said that he's the true king. You didn't even want to be king because you said God is the true king. But David insisted on having this census anyways. He didn't listen. He was so driven to understand his own success in that season. He just had to know. He wanted to do what we all want to do at times. And that's just, hey, everybody, look at me. I'm really somebody because my crowd is bigger. My car, it's newer. My house is nicer. My position is important. Look at me. 
And sometimes we get mixed up about what makes us successful in life, don't we? So the counting begins, and I'm going to start in 1 Chronicles 21, verses 5 and 6. It says this, In all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword. It's 1.1 million men in the army who could handle a sword, including 470,000 just in one tribe alone, in the tribe of Judah. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command to have this census was repulsive to him. <laughs> so Joab says, yeah, I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to count everybody. And so David gets the numbers that he wants, and his heart swells with pride. And he looks at the count, and he says, I must be doing something right. I must really be important. My life matters. I have big numbers. Look how big my kingdom is, David says. All the people who love me and are a part of my kingdom. And I love Joab's response. Joab here says, you know, I'm not going to count any of the men in two of the tribes because I want to keep the number smaller. So maybe David's head will get a little bit smaller. That's what Joab is thinking, right? Joab's thinking, maybe I can slow the swelling of his head a little bit in this moment if I don't count everybody. You see, in this chapter of David's life, he's no longer basing his worth on how much God loves him. He's not basing his worth on God's success through him anymore. David forgets how many times God rescued him from the hand of Saul who was trying to kill him. David forgets how many times the conquests and the military battles that he had been about, uh, that God had brought him through and given him success, success. David forgets all the times where he misstepped and by God's grace, he was welcomed back. David forgets the time when he stood before Goliath and defeated him with a sling and a stone. And David forgets that God valued him while he was an unknown, while he was a nobody, while he was just a boy, the youngest and the least important person in his family. David forgets all those things in that moment. And listen, I want you to hear this this morning because this is so true. This is so true for you and me today. The danger of counting success by counting people and counting things is that we will forget God. It's the biggest danger. If we measure our success by counting people or by counting things, we will forget God. And I want you to hear this this morning because when we feel most prosperous, when we feel most successful, that's when we're in danger of being disconnected from God. We're in the most danger of disconnecting from God when we feel like we're making it on our own. We're successful. We're not only in danger of disconnecting from God, but we're also in danger of disconnecting from his family when we feel like we're doing fine on our own. We're also in danger of disconnecting from his mission that he's given us. Because we start believing that we're just doing things right all by ourselves. You know, inevitably, when people find out that I'm a pastor, one of the follow-up questions at some point is usually, Oh, how big is your church? How weird is that question? I just want you to think about that for just a minute. If I said 20 people, would that make me less successful than if I said 100 people? Or if I said 1,000 people? Does it change my worth or my value as a human being, depending on how many heads can be counted on a Sunday? Is that really, does that credit really have anything to do with me? 
I don't like that question. The temptation is to get so wrapped up in seeing our own success, seeing our own successes in black and white when we look at numbers that we forget to see God's successes all around us. We forget about the love and the grace and forgiveness that we have as a result of what Jesus did for you and I on the cross. We forget about the transformational work that God is doing in us and through us as we surrender to him daily when we start looking at our own success. We forget how he's powerfully at work in the people that God has placed all around us and how we can be a part of that journey along with them. We forget his mission that he's gifted us and called us to be a part of in amazing ways, ways that blow our mind that God would even consider for us to be a part of his work of transforming people's lives in this world. When we get focused on our own successes or we're pursuing our own successes, we forget all those things. We're so focused on us that we forget how much we need God. That's where David was. He got to the place where he put numbers first. He put his perceived success first. And we find ourselves in the same place that David was when we forget that our victories and our successes come from God. We forget that success isn't about numbers on a page or the size of a crowd or dollars in a bank account or square footage of a house. Have you ever been there? I want you to think about it. Maybe you're there right now, this morning, and God's greatness is on the back burner, and your greatness and your success or your pursuit of it is on the front burner. And if you're honest this morning, Maybe your heart has never felt more distant from God than you feel right now. And so as we move on this morning, we're going to see that David is going to figure this out. But by the time he figures it out, the damage has already been done. So let me continue in the story. Upon completion of the census, the prophet Gad informs David of God's anger towards David about this census that he had taken. And that uh, he plans on punishing Israel for this. And David realizes that he has offended God. He's claimed credit for what God has done. I don't know if you've ever had that moment when you realize that you made a really bad decision and you're thinking, oh man, this is bad. How am I going to get out of this one? Some of you are nodding your heads. So you, you're there right now. <laughs> Growing up, uh, my brothers and, and my friends, we had a lot of fun, but we didn't always make the best decisions in life. And most of the time, we didn't realize they were bad decisions until someone got hurt or something got broken or maybe both at the same time. And that was the point where all of us would look around at each other and for one maybe solitary moment, time would freeze and we'd think, oh, that really wasn't the best decision, I guess, was it? But we were young and life kept moving, so from that point on, we either went into cover-up mode or we just tried to figure out how we were going to explain this to mom or dad or the police or whoever needed an explanation. <laughs> so, this is David, and he realizes that his bad decision was displeasing to God and that there were going to be consequences to his bad decision. And he knows that he's got to come clean with God about this, so David says to God, I've sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant, I have done a very foolish thing. Now, if you read earlier on, before this passage that we're looking at in 1 Chronicles today, it's not just David who is thinking this way. There are lots of indicators that the success and prosperity has confused the nation of Israel, that they're becoming less and less dependent on God. They're becoming more and more consumed by the fruits of their own success. 
So God decides to rescue them. And God decides he's going to help David and the nation of Israel understand how fragile success is when it comes to counting heads or when they come to counting dollars or counting the size of the army. When we count on anything or anyone other than God. So God offers David some options. How will you and the nation of Israel return to me? He says to David, your hearts are far from me. You think you no longer need me. So God says, I'm going to give you some options to help you find your way back to me again. So these are the three options that David gives or that God gives to David for the nation of Israel. He says, here are your options. You can have a three-year famine. That sounds attractive. Three months of military fight from your enemies. Your enemies are going to come at you for three months or three days of pestilence. So David chooses what he thinks is the least impacting of the three, three days of pestilence, figuring it was better to fall by God's hand than an enemy's hands. And the Bible says as a result of those three days of pestilence, 70,000 men die. Wow. And Israel and David return to the Lord as a result of it. You see, God th sees things differently than we do. We think maybe God's response to David and to the nation of Israel is cruel because we count numbers and we see things in this life and we think this life is all that there is, but God understands the long game and God knew what was at risk for Israel was something far greater than just those 70,000 men living a long life because God understands and he knows that a life surrendered to his love and leadership is always better than a life lived independently of God. I want you to hear that this morning. God knows that a life surrendered to his love and leadership is always better than a life that's lived independently or separated from God. And in the aftermath, here's what happens, starting in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 16. It says, David looked up, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I, the shepherd, have sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord, my God, let your hand fall on me and on my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. David owns it in this moment. He was sorry for what he did, but he didn't want the people of Israel to have to suffer for the mistake that he felt he had made. But remember, God saw the whole, that the whole nation of Israel had pulled away from dependence on him. They were pulling away from trusting him. They were pulling away from being obedient to him. They were pursuing their own success and celebrating their own greatness. And it goes on to say this, Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word of the, that the Lord had spoken in the name of the Lord. When Arunah was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. This, the angel of the Lord, um, when he appears multiple times in scripture in this way, that um, it's a frightening thing. <laughs> it's a frightening thing. So it goes on and it says, then David approached and when Arona had looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, let me have the sight of your threshing floor so that I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. And Arana said to David, take it, 
Let my lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give him the oxen for the burnt offerings. I'll give you the threshing sledges for the wood. I'll even give you the wheat for the grain offering. I will give you all of this, David. But King David replied to Aaron and said, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours. I will not sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. You know, in this moment, David calls something out in recognition of his own disobedience, in recognition of his own rebellion. In that moment, in recognition of his own pride, he says, my real act of worship in this moment is not just making a sacrifice. My real act of worship in this moment is not just saying the right words. It's not me just getting a free pass and having all this stuff handed to me because I'm the king. David said, I am sorry for what I did, but I'm even more sorry for why I did it. And that's the true sign of repentance, right? When we recognize the heart behind why we sin, when we recognize our own heart motivation behind why we walk away from God, why we say no to God and his best for us, when we not just feel sorry about what we did, but when we go deeper and we understand our own heart and our own wickedness and why we turn away and rebel from God. That's what we want to hear from our kids, right? They come back, and I don't know how it works in your house, but they come back, and, and they know they're supposed to say they're sorry after they did something wrong, so they come back, and they say the words, I'm sorry, and I always ask, what are you sorry for? And they stand there and look at me, and they have no idea. They just knew that they were supposed to say they're sorry, right? Is this just me? Does anybody else's kids, anyone? <laughs> okay. I have some teenagers who still do the same thing. They know they're supposed to say they're sorry, so they come back and say the words, but they have no idea what they're really sorry for. It hasn't ever reached their heart. In those moments as parents, we want so much more than just an apology. We want so much more for, for our kids than just them saying the right words or being able to recite the right words. We want to know if their heart has been engaged. We say things like, if you're really sorry, you're going to stop behaving that way, right? <laughs> Amen. We're looking for true repentance. We're looking for a change of behavior. What we're really desiring is obedience that comes from their heart. We want to know that they want to be obedient and out of their love for us. What David is confessing in this moment is what's exploding from his heart. He knew that God wanted more than an apology. He knew that God wanted more than just a sacrifice. In Psalm 40, and we've been doing this throughout this whole series. If you haven't recognized it, we were able to look at the story of David, and then we're able to look at his journal, and we're able to kind of connect the events that we read in the Psalms, the songs of praise that he wrote to God, pouring out his heart to God in the Psalms, and we're able to connect them to the different events that we read about in his life. And Psalm 40 happens to be connected to this event in David's life. In Psalm 40, David puts into words the only thing that could really demonstrate our love for God, the only thing that can reconcile his heart with God in that moment. He knew that God wasn't interested in his success. He knew that God wasn't interested in him doing, just doing the right thing and making a public sacrifice. He knew that God wanted something more. He knew that God wanted his heart. God wanted David's love and obedience. He wanted David just like he wants us.
And this is what David would write in his journal to remind us of what God really wants from us in times when we've turned away from dependence on him. He writes this in Psalm 40, verse 6 and beyond. He says, you take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Those things had become rituals for God's people. Now that you, now that you have made me listen, God, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. I take joy in doing your will, my God. Your instructions are written on my heart. There's nothing more that a father wants to hear than those words. David, he's confessing. He's saying, God, I know you don't get excited about my sacrifices or my offerings or me saying the right thing anymore. What you really want is not the Old Testament covenant stuff. What you really want is me. You want all of me. Success is not found in numbers. It's found in obedience and surrender. God desires our obedience, not our success. God desires our obedience. You know, the more that we surrender to God, the more success we find in God's eyes. Because surrender brings transformation. And when we surrender to God, he does a work of transformation in that area of our life. And that leads us to want to surrender more to God because he'll lovingly do another work of transformation in us. He'll graciously do another work of transformation in us when we come back before him in surrender. That's what God wants from us. He wants all of us. So here's my question this morning. Does God have all of you? Does he have all of you? How would you even know this morning whether or not God had all of you? David points us in the same direction that Jesus does in John chapter 15. Because John chapter 15 is all about obedience, faithfulness, fruitfulness, fulfillment, and blessing. And what pleases God most is our love for him being returned to him through our obedience to him. That's what pleases the heart of the Father. Jesus says that if we, if we have an obedience problem, then really we have a love problem. And this is where the story gets real for us because success in God's eyes isn't measured by how many, it's not measured by how much. That's why one of my favorite chapters in the Gospels is John chapter 15. I return to it often. It's incredibly powerful and you can go home and read it today. It's one of Jesus' final talks with his disciples. And he leaves them with essentially these four things, essentially these four questions that redefine how God measures success. And this is a whole study in and of itself, but this is how God measures success. Number one, am I faithful to my calling? Number two, am I fruitful in my life and in my ministry? Number three, am I fulfilled by the measure of my own obedience? And number four, am I making God famous through my life? Those are the things that are define success in the eyes of God. You know, one of the things that I love, I absolutely love about this series that we've been in, what I love about studying David is how much we can all relate to him. And I think that we've all confessed that we relate to David when he messes up 
when he sins, when he goes against God's best for him and for others. Everybody has said through this series, oh, I relate to that, right? We all relate to that. But I've also heard from so many of you something that it just encourages me so much as to what God's doing in the heart of our church family. I've heard from so many of you that you also relate to David's heart. You relate to David's desire to return to God, to surrender to his love and to his leadership and to walk in loving obedience with him, that that's your heart as well, that you say, I want to be like David. I want to have a heart after God's own heart. And so as we think about Jesus' definition of success, faithful, fruitful, fulfilled, making God famous, are those things true of you in your life? As we think about that, I want you to know that, da that like David, there are times that you and I are going to fail. There are times we're going to mess up. There are times when we're getting things backwards in life, right? You might be getting things backwards in your life right now. There are going to be those times. And because of it, there are going to be those times where we feel disconnected from God. We've put something else ahead of him. It's become a distraction to us. It's front burner. He's back burner. It's going to happen. But the encouragement that you and I can find through the life of David is to be humble and submissive enough to keep coming back to God. It's what we desire for our kids, right? And it's what God desires for his kids, too. It's why David was called a man after God's own heart, because he kept coming back. He kept returning out of love for God. It's what God is inviting you and I to do this morning, to keep coming back to our love for God and our heart to be obedient. And David's life shows us, and Jesus tells us, that we're going to find true success in the way that only God can provide success for us when we return. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you feel disconnected from God because other things have been on the front burner. Maybe you've been pursuing your own success. And God says this this morning to you and to me. He says, surrender to me. Return to me this morning. Have a heart like David. And I'll make you truly successful. Would you bow your heads with me? As we move into a time of reflection this morning, a time of prayer, uh, maybe for you it's going to be a time of following David's lead and returning to God this morning. I just want to invite you to a place of surrender, a place where you confess not only your desire to return to God, but your willingness to obey him and to walk in loving obedience in a relationship with him. I want to invite you into a space of openness where you're free to spend some time with God and ask him to help you fulfill his calling on your life to be fruitful and to be obedient and to make him famous through all of your life. That's success in God's eyes, not numbers, not relishing in accomplishments or in position, but being thankful and obedient to a God whose success on your behalf has provided you with everything that you need in this life and beyond. God loves you enough 
to send his son Jesus to take the weight of your sin on his shoulders, to take it to the cross on your behalf, and then to conquer sin, death, and hell for you so that he can call you his own, his son, his daughter. That's how much he loves you. Maybe you want to make this your prayer this morning. Just David's prayer. God, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. I take joy this morning, Lord, in doing your will. Maybe this is your prayer. God, I confess I've been disconnected. I've been pursuing my own success. But this morning, Lord, I want to be faithful. I want to be fruitful. I want to be fulfilled. I want to make you famous. I'm returning this morning, Lord. I'm coming back. And I'm committed, God, like David was. I'm committed to keep coming back and surrendering to your love and to your leadership in my life over and over again. God, I can't wait to see what successful looks like through my life in your eyes. I can't wait to see it. God, continue your work in me. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. And God's people said, amen. Listen, as you respond this morning, I want you to think of your response maybe as through this whole series. So many of you I know have connected with, with the heart of David and with the story of David. But this morning, I not only want you to sit here and be connected with the side of David's failures. I, not, I don't want you to just kind of sit this morning feeling like, ah, well, David messed up a lot. I messed up a lot. We'll trudge our way through this life and hope for the best. No, I want you to connect with David's heart for God and his desire to return. I would love it this morning if we could just sit in this open place before the Lord and our response to him could be, God, I'm returning to you. I'm returning to you and I'm committed to continuing to return to you. So in this place, as we kind of engage in this next song of worship, these next couple of songs, I want to encourage you to just respond to God. Whatever prayer you might need to pray, it's a prayer of return, it's a prayer of surrender. Well, you need to do that in your seat. If you need to come forward and pray that, you're welcome to do that. But let's take these next couple of minutes and just respond to God. If you have a prayer request that you want to write on the response card, please feel free to do that as well. But let's take these next couple moments and however God's been speaking to you this morning or throughout this whole series, take a step of obedience. It pleases the heart of God. Take a step of obedience. As you surrender to him, he's going to do incredible things in your heart and in your life. Let's respond to God this morning.